Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. For free. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Got a good one for you this week. Uh, before I uh, launch into it, though, um, another round of shameless self-promotion. Just, just a g- gentle reminder that uh, I wrote a book, a new book. Uh, it's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and you can pre-order it right now. Um, that's the end of the shameless self-promotion. Andrew Sheffer is a friend of mine, uh, and uh, sometimes he's called the Wharton Monk because he both went to Wharton Business School and uh, was for quite a while a Buddhist monk over in uh, Myanmar, formerly known as as Burma. Uh, how all of that happened is really interesting. You're about to hear it. Um, and uh, just so you know, he also um, uh, has a new business called Mindfulness Matters. He teaches uh, meditation uh, to uh, primarily in a business context. Uh, and uh, as I said, his story is really, really interesting. He's got a, a lot to say. Uh, so here he is, Andrew Sheffer. How did you get into this game? The the mindfulness game. Yeah. So, you know, I think after my freshman nice, year. Of, nice Jewish kid from suburban New York. How'd you end up here? After a freshman year of college, I was looking for something to refocus my mind. And I got some books on meditation. And it was teaching us to redirect your attention to the breath and when it wanders to bring it back. But we, so we're about the same age. I'm 46. How old are you? Yeah, a couple years older. Okay, so. I mean, I had all sorts of issues when I was a freshman in college, but I would never have thought to buy a book on meditation. I would have maybe said, oh, I should go to one more keg party. So what was going on with you that you actually reached out for meditation? You know, I I literally think I was aware that my mind was more scattered after that freshman year than before. And so I was just looking for something that could help hone it, make it sharper again. And the idea of my brother actually had been getting into reading a bunch of spiritual books and meditation books, and he handed me a book. Gotcha. So, and you're right. I wasn't perusing the bookstore. He was like, hey, you might like this. You might find this interesting. Where were you in school and what was going on that, that, that was scattering your mind? Nothing. I mean, I was a typical freshman at college, you know, partying, experiencing which different college? things. I went to Johns Hopkins University yeah. undergrad, yeah. Uh, which freshman year, the first half was pass-fail. So that created an environment for some to adjust to the new academic rigors and for others to use the freedom to uh, have more fun. So I was in the latter group. Yeah, I was – yes. Okay. Um, my kind of guy. So, uh, so you started reading about meditation and what happened? You know, I, I started – it was a uh, – there was books about gurus my brother was reading and he gave me all. And it was just an appealing and interesting world. Um, and when I – the book talked about meditation, but it also gave short guided instructions. And I had a lot – I was re- taking a French course at Columbia. And so the rest of the day, I was more or less free. This is the summer. Yeah. It was do, a, do you remember which book it was? Uh, I, it was a Stephen Levine book, um, I think, on dying or, you know, halfway uh, – yeah. There were two books. One was uh, Halfway Through the Door by uh, the actor Arnie – uh, his name is eluding me at the moment. Anyway, it was about his relationship with his spiritual teacher, and the other was this uh, Stephen Levine book. Is it called Who Dies? Question it may mark. have been Who yeah. Dies. I can't remember if it was that one or he has another book out too that yeah. that had. I know. I remember at the end of each chapter there were short guided. I have a phone in my pocket, so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google that. Why not? Uh, because I'm I'm only doing this because I think our listeners would want to know. Uh, because if that book had an effect on you, 
um, it may have an effect on them. Uh, so anyway, so you're reading the book. So I read the book, and I, and I started to notice. Yes, you know, by the way, who dies? Who dies? Yeah. Um, radical shift in my mind. Uh, whereas before, I I was aware that my mind was very irritable. If I had a scratch or an itch that came up, I needed to immediately scratch it. During the end of the summer, my mind felt much brighter, much more balanced, much illuminated. Um, I could see an itch come up. I could pay attention to it, and the itch would go. I didn't have to scratch it. How much meditation were you doing? I was doing a lot. I was doing probably, you know, I was living in a very simple apartment, no TV, no, uh, I had a CD player with a few CDs. It's probably meditating three, five more hours a day. I mean, I was doing a lot of meditation on my own. <laughs> That's all. So you, uh, you, you're, what, 19 years old or something like that? Yeah. And doing three to five hours of meditation a day? I mean, that's yeah. hardcore. You know what? It was. Are you that kind of person? Like you get into something and you just go crazy? No, for there it? was no one to tell me it was hard. There was no one to tell me anything about it. So it was just me trying an experiment. What happens when I try to pay attention? Being a somewhat, uh, you know, uh, perfectionist, if I couldn't do it, it made me want to try harder. And I didn't beat myself up. It was like I'm going to figure – I was smart enough to say I'm going to figure out how to do this rather than, oh, you're not doing it right. Uh, so that combination of things really led to you know, this re- remarkable transformation. And I knew I wasn't so happy with things prior. So it was like try it. And as I tried it, you know, extraordinary uh, results happened, which I didn't – wasn't sure were related to meditation. You know, I thought maybe at 19, your mind just grows up instead of being so reactive, it matures. We heard all heard the word maturity. So it seemed to make sense to me that maybe this just is a normal process. And so, of course, at the end of the summer, I stopped meditating and it all went away. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, there's probably some cause and effect there. So did you then go back to doing three to five hours a day? No, I don't think it was three to five hours uh, at that point. But it was – I believed in the practice and want and needed a certain amount of it to continue to nurture uh, myself. So like I said, you're you, – we grew up in the same era. Also, uh, I'm only half Jewish, but, you know, same kind of cultural milieu. I'm from the suburbs of Boston. You're from the suburbs of New York. Uh, you, uh, you and your brother start getting into meditation. What did your parents think? Because this is way before, you know, meditation became cool. Right. So when my brother first started doing it, I think everyone became slightly alarmed. Uh, so he went up and did a, a 10-day meditation course, and, and I went up and accompanied him as kind of like the chaperone, like what is he getting into? This was after that summer. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you, you, did you actually do the course? I did a nine-day retreat at okay. IMS. Uh, we should just explain to people that's Insight Meditation Society, which is in Barrie, B-A-R-R-E, Massachusetts, amazing place. Uh, so you went up there and did this course with him. With your older brother, and you, the thinking was, uh, you're just kind of going along to make sure he's not in a in a cult. Exactly, and that's what the initial concern was back in the 1980s when we, we were doing this, late 1980s. So your, by the way, just uh, give, give give me a little background on your parents. What what kind of line of work were they in? So my to... father was an entertainment industry executive. Uh, he worked at HBO for 30, 30 something years. My mother had, you know, was a teacher at one point. She was a real estate agent at one point, and she spent a lot of time raising us. So, pretty mainstream, middle of the road folks. Not um, like you didn't grow up on an ashram. No, not at all. Very. My father went to Harvard Business School. Uh, so both educated, both college degrees. My father a master's degree. Both educated, you know, upward 
focused on worldly success. And and a little freaked out when their sons, uh, nice boys, ended up at a, a meditation center. Well, I think my father, you know, took some solace in that he knew I liked the good things in life. He knew I enjoyed at the time I'd smoke occasional cigars. I would certainly drink at the time. I ate steaks. Uh, so he wasn't so worried that I was going to end up on this, you know, more or less monastic lifestyle because he just didn't see, you know, any precedence for me, you know, being interested in that type of life. I was a guy, somebody who really enjoyed the good life. After about seven or eight years of doing this intensely, more or less full time, you know, by the end of that period, they were they were quite concerned uh, <laughs> because our friends were getting married and getting law degrees. Wait, wait, wait. You just skipped over a big thing there. <laughs> So how many years of doing this full-time? Uh, about seven years full-time. Uh, so you – did you drop out of college? No, no, no. I graduated from college. I worked with the founder of the Food Emporium. He was starting a new venture that ended up not being successful. And then a very senior monk – so I had done two nine-day retreats at this point. This monk from Burma was coming. I was like, I wonder what it's like with this, you know, this great master who from Burma. And I went up and I was blown away. I was incredibly impressed and I realized – I could study mindfulness the way that people at Johns Hopkins study for medicine. I could spend ten years doing this, and I wouldn't reach the end of a, a you know an end of a study. It would kind of be the foundation for for more. Okay, there are a thousand things we need to unpack in there. Okay, uh, so you you um, at this point you had graduated from college, yeah, and you're you're you got a pretty conventional job working with a supermarket guy. Um, and you uh, had done a few med- meditation retreats. You were into meditation, and you heard that this Burmese master was coming to IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, to teach a course. This guy's name was Sayada Upandita. He's a Burmese guy, uh, and you go up and take the course, and what happens? You know, it's funny. So I decided to ordain as a monk for this two-month period because that was a possibility, and I figured why not do the full – the full training. As, the supermarket dude was okay with you doing that. For yeah, well, months? his he ended up selling that store, so so it worked out. That, okay, yeah, that opportunity. You were out of a job over, anyway. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Well, I was at another job at that point, but it wasn't a, a career. It was like I was in a job. It was clear it wasn't a career. I asked for a leave of absence. They said no, and so then I made the decision. It was worth leaving that to go and do this. Okay, so you're like 23 or something like that. At the 22. Time. 22. So uh, even here in the United States, uh, uh, even though uh, Upandita, the teacher, wasn't at his home uh, uh, teaching center, he was coming to the United States, even in that circumstance, you could ordain as one of his monks yeah. in Massachusetts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the idea is that the monastic lifestyle is a training. Uh, and so, and it's a very wholesome endeavor. The the desire to let go of your normal worldly situation and become a monk, even temporarily, is a form of letting go. Uh, that is considered very that inert that instinct to move in that direction is considered a very wholesome instinct. Uh, and Syed, you know, has ordained thousands. It, it's very when you ordain, you want to choose somebody, a preceptor, the person who helps you become a monk. Uh, the, the most well-respected, the mo- person who follows their sila, their, their virtue, uh, the most fully and is well-established in the practice. So it's it's uh, wonderful to be have that opportunity to have a teacher, a mentor, a benefactor like that. Uh, and for them, it's a good act, too, to help people discover the path. It's, it's a beneficial thing. So he has what they call SEMA halls. He initiated a SEMA hall at the Insight Meditation Society so that he could 
ordained monks and nuns, and they have one in California and, and all over the world. So you a SEMA hall. You would walk into the SEMA hall, they shave your head, give you some robes, and boom, you're a monk? Well, it's a little longer than that, and there are a few requirements that you need to fulfill to be able – just simple ones. You know, you can't be running away from debt. You have to be a man. Uh, you have to have the permission of your parents. You can't be a well, – you can't be a nun? Uh, not in the full ordination for monks that exist today. That, and then a little sexist? Well, no. The Buddha was actually revolutionary in terms of ordaining women for the first time. But like everything, there are conditions that need to remain in place. So he's got this room set up. Uh, you had to fulfill a few requirements. One of them, you had uh, your uh, and are still a, a man, um, and you weren't running away from debt, although you were running away from job uh, that you no longer cared to stay at. And and they, I would assume, shaved your head and gave you some robes? Yep. And it was a two-month deal? Yeah. And by the end, you were no longer you, – you Right. Sort of, you, 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 it's a training you take up, and you can put down the training. So I could go be a monk for a little while if yeah, I want Yeah, absolutely. I, I encourage it. I may do that. Do I have to shave my head? Yep. That's a letting go. It grows back. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I hope. Um, so s- two months of doing this, uh, it, was it revolutionary for you? It was It was intense. And it was moments of peace. And I, I guess it's like people go and play golf and they have a good golf shot and they replay that good golf shot over and over and over again in their head. Uh, and I think the same happens. It's like there's a lot of difficulty and there are moments of incredible peace where you realize there's something unique and special here. And that keeps you coming back. And meeting Saito Upandita, there was just something so enigna- enig- enigmatic about him uh, and so powerful about him. I mean, I remember I walked in the, for the at the end. They allowed us to have lunch in the same room with him, and I remember we walked into the room with him, and my room, my mind just went quiet, and my mind had never been quiet of chatter before, and so all of a sudden it was a noticeable peace uh, that was extraordinary pleasant, uh, and I realized there's you know as I had on those first two nine day retreats with the various teachers I studied with that there was something special that they had. I felt like with him. I could really spend a lot of time and learn a lot. But So you make it sound somewhat supernatural, his impact on you. No, I mean, I think all people are around other people sometimes. Many of us have experiences. We go to a certain place, we feel a deep sense of peace. Um, but I don't know if it was supernatural. It was, uh, you know, he, having known him over the course of the next 25 years, uh, there was something very nice about spending time with him. It was, like, pleasant. He was an incredible being to be, to be around. Gotcha. Okay, well, that makes more sense. Yeah, I mean, going to the Grand Canyon can still the mind, um, and if you're around somebody who's spent decades working on his mind in that way, I guess I could see how it would have a, a, a contagious effect. Um, in fact, I know very well it could have a contagious effect. You hang around with great teachers, there is something to it. Um, so you made reference to the fact that uh, of the next 25 years, so – it wasn't like you did this two-month retreat and it was over. What ha- what happened? And l- l- before you answer that question, just by way of context, Sayada Upandita, and that's three words, the U, the U in the middle. So it's S-A-Y-A-D-A-W, which is basically the honorific for great teacher. His last name, and this is very common in Burma, the last name uh, is preceded by just a standalone U, and then P-A-N-D-I-T-A, Pandita. Uh, and he's written books. You can go find them. Um, he taught uh, – he and his predecessor taught a lot of the people who founded 
IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, and that includes Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, although Jack mainly studied under a, a, a Thai uh, monk, Ajahn Chah. And um, so you're basically, basically – you're going to IMS a lot and studying with these teachers, these American teachers, but then their teacher comes to town and you're like, oh, this is the guy. Yeah, well, the first teacher actually was – it was a Christmas retreat, New Year's retreat with Jack Cornfield and a couple of other teachers. And that was a you know a, an incredible first experience. It it was a you know a touching experience with loving kindness and you know it opened the heart. Um, the second retreat I did was with uh, a teacher, a German person who had been a monk in Burma for twenty something years. Uh, so again, there was this reference to Burma and this connection to Burma. And then I met Sayadaw Upandita. Uh, so that seemed to move me more in the direction of of Burma. So after the two months, what happened? I was invited by one of the senior teachers on that retreat to continue with him in England. So he had a small house in England that was supported by a local Burmese community. And he basically said to me, you seem like you're pretty sincere and interested in this. And if you want to continue, you can come and, and stay in my center in England. And you said yes. I said yes. And how long, what did that lead to? That was about a year in England. Wow. So, um, Still a monk. No, I wasn't a monk. So okay. at the end of that two-month period, I disrobed, and it was very difficult to, you know, you don't being a monk in the West is somewhat challenging, particularly if you're not, uh, haven't been a monk before, because you don't know all the rules, and then your chance for, inf- you know, making infractions uh, is pretty high. Uh, so they like to- Like what would infraction be? Oh, many. Touching money, touching women, uh, you know, drinking. Like you can't give your mom a hug? No, shouldn't give your mom a hug. I mean, again, this is a very- uh, conservative interpretation of the rules, but um, you know the, the basic teaching is, is that you shouldn't touch the opposite sex with lust. Well, it turns out the mind is very quick. So in the middle, even though it's your mother, in the middle you may have some flash image of some you know beautiful woman you saw that arouses lust, and you're you know then touching your mother. So you're breaking the rule. You're touching a woman while there's lust, even if it's for an instant or a millisecond or a, in your mind, and so. To, to avoid the, that potential, which you'll later – the reason you don't want to break it is you'll feel regret. Your own conscience will let you know that you broke this rule. So it's better to then just avoid the whole circumstance, which could lead to you having headaches. Right. There are remedies for them, but better not to have to take the Although, remedy. What about the remorse you might feel over causing your mother pain for not hugging her? Well, going back to one of the requirements to become a monk is you need the permission of your parents. I see. So they get it. They should. They get should it. get it, right? Although I'm not sure your mom knew exactly what she was signing up. <laughs> so speaking of your mom, what did they think of? Like you went off to, you did this two month retreat, uh, and then you went off to uh, uh, England for a year, and there's more to come. I think we can all intuit. Um, what were they? What were they thinking? I mean, I think she was growing increasingly concerned that I was, you know, doing irreparable harm to my career and to my life. I think it was that simple. You know, this isn't particularly the era during which our parents grew up, you know, taking time off to go meditate wasn't just on the radar. Doing it for two weeks or doing it for one month or one year or five, none of that was was anywhere on the radar. So they were they were exceedingly concerned that I had made life decisions that were going to irreparably harm my future happiness and well-being. Were they right? No. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, and I, I couldn't have you know, predicted it. I just knew that this is an incredibly valuable practice. And when people came to understand what it was all about, they would take to it the way that I would. 
there was nothing unusual about me. They, my parents raised me to have, I think, more confidence, self-confidence than they realized. They gave me a very strong set of values in terms of generosity, in terms of morality, in terms of I remember being taught that you know education is the one thing that can never be taken away from you. So here I was training in generosity, training in moral discipline or virtue, and developing my mind, which could never be taken away from me. It was all perfectly aligned with every value they taught me growing up. So would you say you had this increasing confidence that this practice was really valuable and could be good for everybody? Take me to the heart of that. What what about it was so obviously useful to you? You know, I think, um, number one, just when we lose our happiness, when we become overwhelmed with anger or frustration or sadness, I had never been taught a method to recover from that. And so all of a sudden I started seeing there were things that I could do with my mind that would help me avoid those dramas Uh, And if I did get caught up in a spell of something, I had a means that I could actually overcome it. Uh, And that was, you know, incredibly uh, powerful. That's empowering when, you know, I can suffer from depression at times. And I know there's something I can do to overcome depression. That is incredibly liberating rather than just feeling like you're always a victim to this, you know, state of mind that can come. So how do you uh, – I, I suffer from depression occasionally too. So how do you – what do you do when depression uh, descends? Well, I've had many years of investigating my mind at times when it's depressed and seeing what those con- you know, variable emotions that arise together are. And so I recognize it now. Um, there's also just been a shift in my whole uh, you know, relationship to things where the you know, sadness or loneliness, the, the depth of those emotions that used to arise – uh, have been they've you know they don't arise to that extent anymore. So um, one they may arise, but they're not as sticky, and they don't arise as intensely. There's been a diminishment in their strength, uh, and if they do, and again, it's very heartening to know I have practices that I can do that will o- overcome those. It's not just waiting for them to go away. There's an antidote to them. And just can you take me into like how that works? The antidote. Sure. I mean, I, it's you know using the practices of loving kindness and mindfulness. Those two practices for me are, are uh, you know very helpful in challenging any whether it's physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain uh, that comes up. It, you know, loving kindness uh, can soften or strengthen my mind or provide some peace within a very difficult uh, emotional or physical circumstances. And mindfulness has that cutting through uh, power. And, yeah. So, so some people may sort of be vaguely familiar with those practices, but would would love a little bit more detail. Uh, so, uh, let's just take a hypothetical. You're you're you have a wife and a child. Uh, anybody who's in a committed relationship knows that that can, and or anybody who has a child knows that uh, uh, that can be stressful. So, you're having a bad day. Um, uh, how does it? And you're starting to feel anger or depressed or whatever. How to what what do you actually do with your mind on the most basic level? Which practice do you pick, and how do you use it? Well, I guess uh, it you know there's some intuitive feeling that I've developed in terms of how to work best with different components of my mind. Number one, by spending a lot of time on my cushion in retreats, uh, these states all come and go. You know, the practice on retreat 
are the same basic elements we do every day. We stand up, we sit down, we eat, we go to the bathroom, we shower, uh, we sit. And so we've learned to apply mindfulness to all of our activities throughout the day in everything we do. And so now when I come back to a daily life practice, so to say, when I'm walking from one place to another, instead of you know, projecting about what the future might bring or lamenting about the past, I can just bring my attention back into the left, right, left, right, and I have full confidence of the power and the benefit of doing that. And I think that's the difference between a lot of beginners and a, somebody who's done the practice for a lot longer is the people that have done it a lot longer know the profound benefit that these seemingly simple practices can have to transform the mind. So where somebody else may be doing it and then stopping after a few moments and saying, is this really worth it? Is this really going to work? I have no doubt that it's going to work, and I just go into it full force. That's interesting because I think that does happen to me, you know, uh, that I I mean I do I think by most measures a, a reasonable amount of meditation. But if I'm in a bad mood and that's not an uncommon occurrence and I decide to maybe practice uh, just, just focus on my breath, I, I that kind of doubt can creep in of like, yeah, is this going to help? But that does not happen with you. I mean, I, I, even if it were to happen, I'm not saying it never happens. Even if it were to happen, it gets very little play in my mind and it gets knocked out really quickly because that's where it gets noted as doubt. Yes. Uh, because that is simply a doubt and, and that never has a good, uh, you know, fru- fruition in, in my mind consciousness. Yeah. So so um, I took us on a long digression there, as is my want. Um, but we're we're talking about what happened, sort of the chronology here of what – like so you, you – uh, went off to England for a year, and then what happened after that? Uh, I came back and was in the U.S., spent some time at the Insight Meditation Society as a long-term yogi, uh, ended up organizing retreats to bring the Burmese monks over to the U.S. in 1996 and 1997. We founded a nonprofit. We started organizing these retreats. And then eventually after you know continued trips to Burma and tri- you know retreats in the U.S., I ended up applying to uh, business school uh, to – Finally, after I had felt I reached a place of that I wouldn't lose the benefit of what I had gained and I was strong enough and resilient enough to apply it in all areas of my life, I decided to return and get a business degree, which was a great segue to a more traditional job. And it also allowed me a couple extra years of practice through the application process. So oh, I- <laughs> it was uh, – uh, you know, a, a decision that seems to make a lot of sense. So you went to Wharton. Yes. And what was your idea? I mean, you've done all this meditation. I would have, some people would say, okay, after you've done all this meditation, don't you want to just keep being a monk? Why, why, why wade into the world in such a in such a mercenary way? You know, I remember one time I was standing in somebody's. Uh, it was a Fifth Avenue apartment with a beautiful view of Central Park. And I just had the sense – I just come back from a retreat, I think. And I just had the sense that I was unique in the sense that I really had a hand in both these worlds. I was deeply committed and connected to this mindfulness practice and this tradition in Burma. And I had incredible opportunities as a modern American male uh, to, you know, to be successful in, in kind of corporate America or kind of traditional job roles. And I felt like that's who I am. And I had already seen it in my life. You know, as I had gone off and spent – these intense periods in meditation, I'd also come back and worked on Wall Street for periods of time and in between intensive retreats, uh, you know, seeing what what had I really learned, what was permanent, what was 
uh, just temporary. Uh, and so it was a good test to keep going back and forth. And it reminds me, I was coming off of a retreat once, and I was going to a, a dinner to honor my father, actually. And I kept thinking, like, oh, I'm going off retreat now. And I'm going back to retreat because I was going back and forth between retreat and non-retreat so many times. And I just realized it at one point, like, that didn't make sense anymore. And if I wanted to be continuous in the practice, my off retreat had to be applying the practice as well. And so that's when my practice really became a lot more robust. It was like everything was an opportunity to practice rather than intensive retreat being the practice and the rest of it being what I'm trying to get away from uh, so that I can go practice. So that was a big development in my growth and understanding of the value and where the practice could be applied. How did the other students respond to you as a uh, former monk? You know, it was fantastic, actually. Um, the the response from people, Wharton gets incredibly successful people in a variety of different areas. The the tie that binds the, the population of Wharton is that people have taken an interest and pursued something to an extraordinary extent. Uh, that could be finance. That could be being a monk. Uh, and so people were curious, and it gave them access. And you know, I, I remember one of my friends who had gone to Yale undergrad, and here she was at Wharton Business School, and she came to my meditation class on campus, and she said, you know, I, I was feeling, still feeling insecure, even in class here. Like, am I good enough? Are the other students going to do better? And she realized if I don't address my insecurity now, then, you know, it'll be something that plagues me forever. And so she saw mindfulness as a tool to start turning inward and really figuring out what's going on. So people were captivated by it. It was interesting. And, and, you know, they heard my story and they saw here I was applying for private banking jobs and I ended up with a, you know, a job, summer job at Goldman Sachs and going to Morgan Stanley full time. So it was a, a success story for everybody. You know, they took this guy who had been a monk and now he's a, you know, a banker on Wall Street. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Did 
did you, did your monastic training and your deep study of Buddhism not diminish your desire for financial success? No, I mean, I, again, from uh, the belief in the cause and effect, uh, you know, having financial riches is the good effect. That's a good thing to have. Um, you know, I don't want to greedily pursue these things, but if you're, you know, I, I certainly remember when I was choosing a career, you seem to get paid a lot more picking up the phone and, and making a telephone call when you're doing it on a Wall Street trading desk than when you're doing it for a nonprofit. So recognizing the disparity in, in uh, you know, how our society rewards these things, uh, it, I like, my, my father recognized early, I do like comfortable life. Uh, and so it made sense to pursue something that, that that made sense. Also, when we were working for the monks, as an attendant, I would handle the money for the monks. And so you had to be a trustworthy person. And, and this ultimately is what wealth management is built on, is that you, know, you become a trusted advisor to people with money and what they should do. And you should be looking out for their best interest uh, and working on their behalf. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't do many years of monastic training first. But it, it's really the best foundation in the qualities you need to be a successful private banker, wealth manager. So we should say that that's what you ended up doing. You became a wealth management yeah. guy. So were you doing that? Um, so after you graduated, you went into wealth management. Were you still often on retreat? Oh, absolutely. So how did you balance that? You know, so business school was great. We had a lot of long holidays before starting my full time job. We had two months off. I went and did a retreat. And I thought banking was going to be a career with a lot of stability that wouldn't provide a lot of opportunity for going off on intensive retreats. But there have been plenty of crises, starting with 9-11, on which today we're, we're having this conversation. I was working at Morgan Stanley at the time. Our training class was terminated shortly after the, the uh, terrorist attacks. So that provided the first opportunity to go back to Burma uh, and do some meditation. And, and again, there were repeated opportunities to move between financial services firm because of global events and, and those provided opportunities for intensive practice. So I did you know, many months and years of practice since. And then you ended up moving to the region, right? Yeah, exactly. I moved over to Singapore as, on one of my trips to Burma as the uh, wealth management industry in Singapore was exploding. They wanted somebody with you know New York skills but understood Asian culture. And so my all of a sudden, the background in my training in Asia with monks started to show some of its first uh, worldly uh, benefits. So let me just go back to this money thing for a second because you say you, you, your father recognized early that you like nice things. I like nice things, so no, no judgment here. But um, I mean, I think a lot of people might be wondering, well, if you go and do that amount of meditation and you're that s- steeped in the process of letting go, why would you still remain so acutely acquisitive? Why would you want to? Wouldn't that diminish your desire for these nice things? Wouldn't you see through that their their supposed value? Yeah, well, I wasn't, uh, you know, after so many years of training, I wasn't going out and buying Gucci belts and Gucci shoes, and I wasn't spending my money that way. I saw that I could, you know, $100 at a monastery goes a great way, helping to support, you know, terribly poor people that are deeply devoted to this practice and are likely to be the next generation of great teachers, they're living in very, very difficult circumstances. So the idea of being able to use wealth for the purpose of those types of things, I ended up recording, you know, making digital recordings of over a thousand talks of Saira Upandita. You know, that's a legacy that we'll give for 
for for a long, long time, and and so that to buy digital recording equipment and and all the tapes and and all these things, it takes money, it takes resources. So there are plenty of great examples of lay people who have done, you know, profoundly uh, benefited the 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 te- these teachings in the world. And so that was the the role model I think Sayadaw saw me in and and encouraged me to pursue. Right, right back to the Buddhist scriptures. The Buddha was hanging out with very wealthy people and kings. Uh, so he didn't have some sort of uh, fundamental beef with uh, power or uh, or financial success. He had he didn't think they were inherently bad necessarily. Correct. But they, although they could be misused. So tell me about. Your relationship with this teacher, uh, si, did you even speak the same language as the guy? Not so much. I mean, he he understands English and would speak in you know uh, some simple things to me in English, but he preferred to use a translator. But there was a, a connection, heart to heart connection there. Uh, it was like an extended family member, um, and it was funny. My grandmother in New York ended up meeting him one time, and she was somewhat skeptical before she met him. Like. You know, who's this guy who my son is so fascinated with? And they hit it off, uh, you know, to an extraordinary degree where she would always affectionately refer to him and check in on him and he, her. It was like brothers and sisters from another, you know, from another mother and other parts of the world. But uh, they totally hit it off. And that really helped nurture this strong feeling of family and uh, and connectivity. So what was he like? Because we should say he, not too long ago, and you you were, we'll talk about this, but he passed a couple years ago. Uh, What was he like? You know, I think it depended upon who you were, and that would be the aspect of Sidaw that was revealed to you. Yeah, because I've sometimes heard of him described as pretty stern. Yeah, I I said that to him once. I said, I've heard all these stories that you're, you know, you're so tough, but I said, you're like a little pussycat. (laughs) And he just laughed. And because I think for me... That's what I needed. I needed a benefactor who was very kind. Uh, I was very tough and driven myself. Uh, and so I didn't need an external uh, manifestation of that. I needed somebody who could teach me to be more gentle and loving of myself. And so that's what, uh, you know, how we represented. And, you know, I think in the scriptures they talk of four types of horses. Uh, you know, one who sees the shadow of a whip and starts to run faster one who hears the whip and starts to run faster, one who gets a light whip and starts to run faster, and one you really got a whip. So I was the shadow of the whip. You know, all you had to do was, you know, fake a head movement, and I was off and running. Uh, So, you know, I was fortunate. And and as I spent more time with him out of the retreat context, uh, again, there was a a lovely interpersonal. I mean, this is, you know, outside of my parents – the kindest person in the world to me over a period of 25 years. And I look back on that 25 years and what he, the way he treated my wife and helped her, you know, work through her own issues and the way he taught me to treat my parents better and my family members, but like he's only been a beneficial influence of my life. And that's over a 25 period where I was spending, you know, three months or more a year with him. Mm. So there's a lot of data there and I've never met another human being like that, that, uh, could so consistently just be perfect. 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 Is it, you never saw him uh, put a foot wrong? With me, no. With you. Interesting. So, and I don't think with my wife. So So you met your wife through him? No, not at all. She came to a Wharton Business School party, and I met her there. Gotcha. But she ended up uh, studying with him. Yeah. And she, and she found him really, really beneficial. Yeah. 
so when he was stern, because I've Joseph Goldstein, my teacher who studied with him, the stories that I've heard of him, his time with Pandita, he talks about him being really tough. So that may say more about Joseph than it does about Pandita. You know, I, I think a lot of the Western teachers, we came to meet Sayadaw and the, the Burmese tradition at different times in our learning. So I think Joseph and Sharon, they had all spent time in India with various gurus and other meditation teachers, and then they met Mahasi Sayadaw and Upandita. I don't Mah- think Mahasi Sayadaw, by the way, was the predecessor to Upandita. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, so I don't think they it was their first introduction to the to the teachings. Whereas for me, you know, within the first year of having practiced, I was with him and I was with him more or less full time. Right. Uh, so I think you know that framework. And the perspective we came to the practice with, and I also had the benefit of coming and hearing that he was this great master. So I showed up with that level of respect, whereas Joseph and Sharon, they had also studied with many other great teachers. So I can't speak for them. But, you know, I think that different uh, background when we first met him uh, may have influenced. And his job then, he was coming and he saw this group of, quote, teachers and I think he had very clear ideas of what the standard of a teacher would be, and he wanted to make sure that everyone lived up to that fully. Gotcha. Well, that makes that all makes sense. So what are you doing now? So I returned from Asia, um, and I'm focused now with the growing interest in mindfulness and taking my background of intensive mindfulness and corporate America and bringing mindfulness to corporations. And how's that going? You know, it's great. I'm blessed in, in incredible ways to, to get my foot uh, in the door, to work with companies and innovative individuals. Uh, I've created an online program that I think is fairly unique. Uh, when I listen to many of the apps and, and, you know, teachings that are out there, they don't really focus on this particular tradition as exclusively. And this methodology, which has a lot of, you know, research backing it up as being very effective, and so I've just tried to deliver it in a very approachable, accessible way that just seems so obvious, uh, yet it's completely authentic and sticks to a tradition which millions of people have followed. And what's the what's, what are you branded under? What, who, who are you working with? Like, give, give me that sort of Sure. I mean, picture. so there's a growing list. There's a Standard Chartered Bank and I are, are going to be doing a program together. Um, there's a hotel group in the UK, the GLH group, the largest owner-operated. We did a bunch of programs for them to help them bring their corporate values and, and mission. You know, it's very easy to say we want people to be great hosts, uh, but you've got to develop those inner qualities to be able to be great hosts. Mm, that's interesting. And many people in the hospitality industry, for example, particularly in the UK, these are immigrants that are working and serving people at four- and five-star hotels whose net worth is significantly higher than the people working uh, in the hotel. And sometimes that can be intimidating to people. And so developing loving kindness, uh, developing this feeling of you're a host, uh, teaching the tools of mindfulness so that you're not as reactive if if a guest is getting upset, but you're more compassionate in your understanding that, oh, something triggered this person, and how do I want to respond, and, and you know how can I support them rather than uh, getting a, more of a conflict with them. These are all very beneficial outcomes. I'm doing work with a couple of finance companies in the U.S. now because uh, they're interested in improving their sales force. One of the biggest problems in sales is a lack of ability to really listen and pay attention. People are so quick to come up with an answer 
that they stop when we're thinking of the answer, we're no longer listening to the person talk. And so you miss a number of opportunities that might present themselves otherwise. Big problem in my line of work. Before we started uh, recording, you and I were talking a little bit about the fact that it's hard to start a business. You know, I, I have my own company, uh, uh, and it's hard. Um, so t- tell me about the difficulties of getting this business off the ground and how uh, you can use mindfulness and to your meditation practice to deal with the kind of uh, economic struggles that so many people are dealing with. Sure. I mean, I, I think, uh, number one, going back to uh, how you can deal with stress better, you know, it turns out stress diminishes our IQ. Uh, and I think many entrepreneurs know we're uh, frequently operating in high stress regularly. Uh, and so we need periods of time to recover from that to get our balance back. We need to recognize when we've lost our balance because, you know, we saw this in Singapore. People sit at their desks for many hours, and productivity in Singapore is actually relatively low worldwide. And so that supports all the findings that, you know, sitting at your desk for longer and longer hours doesn't produce better outcomes. And so we need tools to teach to enable us to have greater resiliency, to have greater recovery. Uh, And so when I'm getting too stressed, I can recognize that quickly, and I can take those recovery measures. I can sit and close my eyes, recognize what's going on, rebalance my attention, my focus, and I come out recharged and with greater clarity. And I also think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're making judgments all day uh, that your life depends on, your financial life in a sense depends on them. The right call, successful business. The wrong call, you're out of business. And so having more clarity can be essential, uh, again, because the, the margins are so slim on you know, the difference on the outcomes. So I think all these things, and, and I'm fortunate that you know I'm really passing down a, a proven tradition. So there's no failure here for me, whether I'm successful or not. I'm doing my best to make what I have found to be tremendously helpful on a wide, more widely available. It's not widely available through all the apps I've heard. You know, they touch upon this particular technique, but it's not really offered in in the form that it is. Uh, to go really deep with it. And I think there's a growing interest in being able to take some of these practices and going deeper. So how is it what you teach different than what my app or Headspace or or what I might learn if I go to um, a local meditation studio here in New York or L.A. or Austin or wherever? Well, I think uh, going back to my earlier comment that, you know, the level of doubt uh, when it comes to these practices and the benefits of these practices So I have no doubt that this noting practice uh, will take you the entire journey. The the psychologists call it affect labeling. Uh, In the meditation tradition, it can be called noting or labeling. Can you describe for people what that is? Sure. It's it's just using uh, everyday language to label what our experiences are. So we start with the rising and falling of the abdomen. And when our abdomen rises, we note it as rising or label it as rising, rising. And when it falls, we label it as falling, falling. And if we have thoughts or feelings, we give each of these as thinking, thinking, or worrying, worrying, whatever the appropriate uh, mental state that is arising or sensation that is arising, we give it a, the label. And that helps us then relate to it from a kind of a, a more uh, dispassioned perspective and an understanding then about the quality, the nature of these phenomena that we're paying attention to. And so... Many people will talk about this technique and use it at different moments. But 
in the training that I did, this is useful 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, and so when you pursue it with that degree of consistency uh, and there isn't another option to go to, you become adept at it and you become skilled at it. And uh, it's not just one of another meditation methods. It is the path. So the path toward what? Well, I think, number one, the path towards suppressing a lot of the negative states of mind and the path towards encouraging positive states of mind, some of which we've developed, some of which we haven't yet experienced developed. Uh, and as you do this from uh, more and more, it goes from a temporary eradication of some of these states to a permanent uprooting of some of these so states. You're talking about enlightenment here or awakening, liberation. A liberation from negative states of mind, absolutely. And that is a, uh, like – you, so you you can achieve a level of liberation where you just never get unhappy again? You know, I, I understand that, that that is – I haven't fully reached that, <laughs> but I think I've spoken to people who seem to think that that, that is uh, – yes, that, that is, is possible. possible. But so if you're teaching some hotel workers or some financial managers or whatever this practice, is there any chance – or you te- we're going to have you do a little meditation here. Uh, is there any – chance that I'm going to reach that level of liberation or some cousin of it? Sure. If you're Well, if you're not doing that practice, you're not going to reach it. So uh, <laughs> right. if you are doing it, then you're certainly starting to walk in the right direction. Absolutely. And that's why... But, but, but the people who you've talked to who seem to be pretty far in that direction, these are Olympic level meditators they they're monks uh, what, what 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 hope do i have as a, just a, like a regular guy you know the, the the timeline perspective of spiritual practice is so much larger than than you know who we were bo- you know, i believe than who we were born in this life you know my connection to this practice is much deeper than andrew sheffer uh, who showed up in 1968 uh, i you know i had a strong affinity to this practice i it, it seemed somewhat natural and intuitive to me um, I believe we've all been doing this practice for 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 a while. Anybody who's doing it now has been doing it exactly. for a while. So this you're t- now you're talking about karma and rebirth. Yeah, and so it, it, we don't have to use that language. It, it doesn't matter. I think there's no this story you're telling yourself. Oh, I'm Dan Harris, and I'm just a a guy who's got a job, and I did th- that. I don't. I ignore that story. That's that's the story you may tell yourself. It's not the story I'm telling myself about you. What what's that story? That story is that you have this. You know. Uh, same potential that I have, and if you do the same practices, just like the people before us who did these practices produced incredible results, we will. We are walking that same path, and this is what that path leads to, those incredible life-altering results. Do so you have such an – I mean, now, now that you're kind of uh, uh, branding under this, uh, this idea of the Wharton monk, which I think is really cool, um, is this an interesting combination? Because on the one hand, you, know, you talk about science um, – you went to Wharton. Uh, you you're very much in the in the world. You know, you're starting a business. Uh, you've you've been a wealth manager. On the other hand, you know, you you some of the metaphysics of Buddhism, um, like you're you're down with that stuff. So it's a really interesting combo from my standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I I uh, when I when people ask me, you know, what what faith do you follow? When I when I look for teachings to understand my place in this world and how the world works, I do look to the the Buddhist teachings, and is that a problem for you in a corporate? If you, as somebody who wants to to, to go, come into a corporate context and teach meditation, is that an issue? 
No, because I don't mention it. It's irrelevant. I teach you a practice. It's as useful in, in corporate America as it is in a monastery in Burma. There's nothing religious. Paying attention and recognizing what's going on. There's nothing religious. There's no belief. It is. You're telling me what's going on for you and how you're identifying and label. I'm giving you some very simple instructions. What's amazing is how quickly that produces results in people from all walks of life and all faiths. And and, and and like the Buddha, you're basically saying, um, so yeah, I happen to uh, be- believe in karma, rebirth, enlightenment, but you don't have to. You can if you want to. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't, you don't. You don't have to believe in that stuff to do the practice. Absolutely not. And and these aren't conversations I have. You know, the way in my style doesn't elicit these kinds. It's like, hey, what did, what happened and how did you note it? Yeah. You know, if you start talking about this and speculating on that, it's irrelevant. You're you're not doing now. You're speculating and label it as speculating. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we do a little meditating, where if people want to get more information about you, can they go? So I have a, a couple of websites. One is andrewsheffer.com. Uh, people can SMS me at uh, 415-528-7403. You're giving out your cell number on no, a podcast? No, this is a, okay. a message they can thing, and they, the message they should write is Wharton Monk. Uh-huh. And then they'll be able to get signed up for my list, and I'll be able oh, to okay. follow up okay. with them. All right. And uh, that's, uh, that's good. Those two are good places to get started. All right. Okay. Are you down do, for doing a little meditation? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Like 10 minutes, something like that? 10 minutes? Yeah. Great. Okay. I'm going to take the headphones off just because it's more comfortable for me. And I'm getting a thumbs up in the back. So Terrific. Close my eyes. Okay. So we're going to begin by closing our eyes and bringing our attention inward. And frequently at the beginning, I like to just take a quick, scan or inventory of my body and the sensations in the body. So frequently I'll start at the top of my head and bring my attention to my forehead and my eyes. And sometimes I'll feel pressure or tension or throbbing there. And that quick awareness just allows me to recognize and let go or relax a little bit. And then I'll bring, continue to bring my attention to my cheeks and my mouth my neck and my shoulders and I hold a lot of stress in my shoulders so usually by simply focusing there for an instant I can let go of some of that tension and then I continue down to the chest and the back the abdomen the buttocks touching the cushion my thighs and knees and feet touching the floor. So now we just find ourselves sitting here with our eyes closed, our body sitting somewhat relaxed. And as we sit still, we want to try to direct our attention to the the movement of the abdomen the rising and falling of our stomach area as it happens naturally with the breath. It's been doing it all day, all night, all week, all month, our whole lives, our breath is happening on its own. And so what we're doing when we practice mindfulness is we use our breath and our abdomen simply because it's meant to be the most obvious sensation in the body because it's the only part of us that's moving. 
and as it rises and fills with air naturally on its own, we're just going to gently label it as rising, rising. And as the air is expelled and the abdomen falls, we're going to label it as falling, falling. So I'll be quiet for a few minutes and give you the chance to connect to your own rising and falling. And you can feel free to put your hands to touch your abdomen lightly if that helps bring your attention there and tune in to the sensations. And just remember as the rising happens, we're going to note it or label it as rising, rising. And as the air is expelled and the falling happens, we're going to label it as falling, falling. Now as we sit for slightly longer, we may start to notice other sensations in our body. We may notice thoughts or thinking. The mind could be racing or planning. And it's good to recognize these different sensations and feelings. And once we recognize that our attention is focused on them or absorbed in them, at some point we may be able to redirect the attention as the next rising or falling happens naturally on its own. And then we would just resume the noting of rising or falling. And it's not uncommon for our mind to pick up the habits it's been engaged in today, earlier in the day, if we've been doing a lot of thinking or planning, it's very likely that that'll take over our mind again. And it can be very helpful to use a note or a label to recognize what's happening for us. If it's thinking, then we label it as thinking, thinking. If it's planning, we can label it as planning, planning. And sometimes we hear sounds. It could be background sounds noises. We may find ourselves listening or hearing these things. And again, wherever our attention goes, we can recognize this, give it the appropriate label, and then after a few notes or labels, we can try to gently work our attention back to the next rising or falling as it happens naturally. So I'll be quiet again and let you reconnect with your rising and falling and give you the chance to note or label other thoughts, sounds, sensations that arise before returning to the next rising or falling as it happens naturally.
again, other mental activity can sneak up on us. We may find ourselves thinking or imagining. Or we may find the mind becoming calmer, tranquil, relaxed. And again, these are other phenomena, sensations to be noticed and noted or labeled. And then refocus the attention on the next rising or falling and label it as rising or falling. Sometimes when we're paying attention to the rising or falling, we may notice characteristics of the breath, pressure or movement, or we may notice the form or the manner, deep or shallow. And there'll be many things we come to know when we pay attention. But we want to keep coming back to the labeling of rising or falling. It helps us refocus And bring your attention back to the sitting posture and the awareness of the full body. And after your next rising, you can open your eyes. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Well done. Awesome. You're good to go. Great. Thank you, boss. Appreciate Thank you. It. Okay, so that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to suggest topics or guests for the show, just hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Special thanks to Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the team here at ABC who uh, helped make this thing possible. And remember, we're now on TuneIn. You can hear our new episodes there five days early on Fridays through the end of this year. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. 
Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.